Kiwi late. It's going to be close here. Kiwi's going to beat them all with a mighty run. Driving lane races up the Manufique, takes the lead in the cup. Out wide is Gunsin, Stormy Seas, but Piping Lane's going to win the cup. But it's Doremus nicely clear in the Melbourne Cup. He's got the cup run. He's holding nothing like a Dane, and Doremus wins the cup. Rain Lover and Allsop, they're going head and head. Rain Lover on the inside. Rain Lover's got his neck in front and won by a neck. Champagne and Jezebel. Champagne, Jezebel, fighting back. Jezebel, Champagne, they hit the line. Jezebel wins the cup from Champagne. But a champion becomes a legend. The Cody Debra's won it. American Trevian. Celebrating Australia's greatest race, the history of the Melbourne Cup. Pelion coming from the clouds on the outside, rising fast is too far in front, however, and in the run of the boat, rising fast, going to win the Melbourne Cup by two legs from Helion. Right fingers goes to Zima, they hit the line, locked together, dead eight. A dead eat in the Melbourne Cup, Seymour and Lightfingers. Rain Lover's eight lengths in front, going further away, and Rain Lover wins the Melbourne Cup by ten lengths. Here's Brian Martin. Hello and welcome to edition five of the History of the Melbourne Cup. I really hope that you're enjoying uh, the editions that we're putting together. Farlap was an interesting story with Andrew Lemon last week. This week, a name that has been synonymous with the Melbourne Cup is the outstanding jockey, the champion, Damien Oliver. Longevity, we'll look at Damien. He's had 28 rides so far in the Melbourne Cup. He's won it three times, he's run second three times. And during this week, I caught up with him over a bite to eat. Well, in the history of the Melbourne Cup, it's great to catch up with uh, the absolute champion of Australian racing, Damien Oliver. Ollie, good to see you. Thanks for having us, Brian. Um, 28 rides in the Melbourne Cup starting out in 1989, and that particular day you fell off. Yeah, didn't quite make it around in that one. Um, I remember well, picking up the ride quite late, actually, maybe only a day or two before the race, and um, it had 48 and a half kilos, and... Um, quite an outsider I think about 250 to 1 or something and um, yeah I was travelling quite well in the race back in the field and following Salas Opera Richard Jolly was on the horse actually and um, she was a Perth Cup winner and I think I had all the place getters around me terrific Um, Citizen was near me and and all of a sudden Salas Opera clipped heels and um, Richard was dislodged and he was hanging onto the side of the horse and um, I thought I was going to get around him and he actually let go of the reins and fell right in front of me and my horse tripped over him so it was about a thousand metre mark so it was about as far as I got. How did you get out of it? Uh, yeah I was fine yeah I, I walked back to the ambulance cursing and <laughs> um, thought I might have been a bit concussed when they said that Terrific had won because obviously I was apprentice to Freedman's and then they said Superimposed had run second so um, it was a bit of a bittersweet um, night for me that one with the Freedman celebrating and me um, um, quite quite disappointed, you might say. <laughs> you, you come over from WA, you're a WA boy, and you'd ridden your first winner at Bunbury in March of 88, so you hadn't been over here too long. No, I think I came over in about May 89, um, just on three months loan originally, and um, it was, didn't start that great, but, you know, towards the end of the three months started going well, and... Um, decided to extend my stay and um, started to have some success and and then um, yeah it led into a you know a Melbourne Cup ride later that spring. As a kid riding what, what did you know of the Melbourne Cup were you aware of the um, the enormity of the of the race? Yeah it was always a pretty big deal growing up and because I came from a racing background and family with my father and grandfather and brother's brother being a jockey at at school you kind of always you know, when it came around that time, you'd watch the race and, you know, you'd get asked a lot about it and um, probably never really thought that you'd, you'd get to it or ride in it or let alone win it. Um, but, yeah, it became... When I moved to Melbourne, it became more a uh, more realistic opportunity and, uh, yeah, it was, um, it was great to finally ride in one. You must have got pretty homesick coming all the way from WA. You're based at the stables, living with uh, Lee and Janelle Friedman, up there on the hill, overlooking Flemington, uh, very different to Belmont and, and tracks like that, uh, and Ascot back home. Yeah, I suppose the biggest challenge was leaving home at 16 years old and going to a different state, and you didn't really know anyone or have any family. So yeah, it was um, you know you're working pretty much seven days a week. So 
Um, yeah, you got a bit lonely at times, but you know, whenever you rode some winners, that kind of the the loneliness and the homesickness sort of um, went to the to the background. And um, but you know, it was probably the the difficult times when you weren't going so well that you you thought more more of home and your family and friends. The Freedmans uh, obviously recognised your talent and uh, wanted you to be a part of their stable, and they were really to uh, really were beginning to emerge in Australian racing and, and their ride was quite incredible. Um, who actually made the offer for you and how did that sort of all come about for you for a 16-year-old to come to Melbourne? It originally came from my brother actually who came and rode for the Freedmans a few years earlier. He's a few years older than me and he came over but only claimed one and a half kilos at the time so I found it a bit hard um, but he understood and realised that you know that me coming through a few years later that to come over with a bit more claim and um, I think I met Anthony Friedman at the yearling sales in Perth and opportunity came over to came for me to come over for them for that winter and um, yeah that's sort of how, how it came about. Tough bosses? Uh, yeah tough but fair you had, you had to work hard um, you know very very disciplined um, but they gave you good opportunities too so you know it helped me in good stead. The uh, the first of the Group One uh, wins came for uh, came with Submariner, was it for Leon Corson to Caulfield? Yeah, um, actually Bart Cummings trained. Bart still had the horse, yeah. Yeah, Leon was um, his foreman at the time, and um, I think he carried about forty nine kilos and Rupert Clark, and uh, yeah, that was my first Group One winner. And once you got on the uh, the Melbourne Cup trial, uh, your second ride was nineteen ninety. The horse Frontier Boy ran twentieth, but. Uh, you were getting close to the mark in 1994, second on Paris Lane. The horse had won the Caulfield Cup, um, and and you really had emerged as a as a, a outstanding rider here in Victoria. 92 was terrific, of course, as well, wasn't it? Winning the Caulfield Cup on the mannerism. Yeah, that was um, yeah starting to get better in my rides in the cups, and you know getting better chances, and starting to. Um, certainly know my way around a lot better by then too and um, Paris Lane was great winning the Caulfield Cup and then probably a little a little unlucky in the Melbourne Cup he drew really wide and and Jern got a great run through on the inside that year and I was I was really happy for Wayne Harris because he'd had a a pretty tough career as well and um, it was great to see him win it but you know it sort of hit hit home when you run second a little bit later when you get back in the jockey's room but to win it the following year was um was pretty amazing. They say second sucks. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's not. Um, well, I mean, it's you know, it's still good. You get obviously paid pretty well, and it's um, but sometimes disappointing to get so close and not get there. But as long as you have your chance to win, is the main thing. If you're unlucky, then it's a bit harder harder to swallow. I remember calling that race in '94, and gee, he, he emerged and loomed up Paris Lane. He looked the winner, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he just uh, as I said, Jern got a great run through on the inside, and I had to come around them, and um, yeah, he was. Um, he was, he was a great stayer as well. Vintage Crop and Paris Lane. Paris Lane, look at him come down the outside with a withering run. They're followed by Umpala, but Paris Lane out in the centre. Racing up now to grab Jern, who got through from further back. Elko, Vintage Crop can't go on. Over on the inside, clear now, Jern. Jern has raced two lengths in front of Umpala and Paris Lane. Jern, the import, is holding them at bay. It's Jern in front for David Hayes. Two lengths in front of Paris Lane. And Umpala and Jern wins the Melbourne Cup. Jan, a length and three quarters, Paris Lane. So you didn't have to wait long. It was 1995 and uh, the win on Doremus. It was a wet track. And you hadn't been on Doremus, just going through the records, you hadn't been on the horse in the lead up into the Caulfield Cup, uh, into the Melbourne Cup. You you won the Caulfield Cup on him, of course. And um, so you're going for the double. What what was the reason there? Was it mainly because he was at weight for age and you you were waiting to ride at the, the lower weight in the cup? I'm not really sure. I may have, may have had a suspension there, maybe leading up to it, but I certainly remember riding the year before. He won, um, he was maybe my third or fourth winner of the day, Caulfield Cup, the year before, um, when I won on Paris Lane, and he won a 2,000-metre race that day at Caulfield, and Lee had a long-range plan to set him for the Melbourne Cup the next year and raced him pretty sparingly through the winter in Brisbane and in the aim to get him in on a good handicap in the, in the Melbourne Cup. And... Um, yeah, we thought he'd be a good chance in the Caulfield Cup, but probably better suited to the Melbourne Cup at Flemington. And the fact that he won the Caulfield Cup was a, you know, was a great result. Um, then we got to to Flemington, and he he got a penalty for winning the Caulfield Cup, and it came up a wet track, and we weren't sure how he handled the wet at that that point, but it turned out that he loved it. So it was um, 
you know, it was a fantastic win. Yeah, he was a horse with um, very fickle feet, wasn't he? He was always a, a challenge for the trainers to get him right. Yeah, he was. Um, he wasn't a fashionable horse. He wasn't great to look at. Um, a uh, you know, unfashionably bred Kiwi who, um, you know, I think just taking their time with him really helped him and uh, he just improved as he got older. I think he ended up running in four Melbourne Cups and became, you know, a very, um, uh, you know, a, a great soldier for the stable. He was just a fantastic horse. He beat nothing like a Dane and a Vintage Crop who won the Cup in 93. Uh, from memory, I think Vintage Crop had a fairly wide run in your year. What do you remember of that 95 win? Um, yeah, I just remember being back in the field. I actually clipped heels going out of the straight that time and he stumbled a little bit. I was a little bit lucky. Um, but um, I remember moving into the race, coming around the 800 metre mark there and, um, you know, he was just cruising into the race. I was just really just timing my run and, um, you know, he looked like he was going to be really hard to beat and he was, he was just too strong for them that year. The interesting thing was he went straight from the Caulfield Cup to the Melbourne Cup and the old theory used to be uh, Bart Cummings' theory, he had to run in the McKinnon on Derby Day but it wasn't the case, Yeah, I think the penalty must have been 2.5, would that be right? Yeah, 52 to 54 and a half um, but Freedman's had, them in, had the horse right in the zone didn't they? Yeah, as you said they, they used to, it used to be common for them to run between the Caulfield and the Melbourne Cup back in that time but it was just starting to change a little bit with the Euro- European influence coming in and I remember discussing with Lee that we didn't think he needed another run between the Caulfield and the Melbourne Cup because he was just a natural stayer and uh, um, yeah it worked out really well. So uh, as you say you clipped heels going out of the straight but from then on you had a pretty good run when did you realise that uh, you know the winning post wasn't far away you had it? Yeah coming in the straight I was pretty co- quietly confident you know and you, you think when you only got a couple in front of you it's a long way to be in front um, and you're hoping nothing else is coming out of the pack. But uh, the way he was travelling, I was quietly confident that he was going to be really hard to beat. Doremus is ranging up on the outside. Doremus has hit the front. Nothing like a Dane getting up on his inside. Three lengths further back in the race and quick ransom. Damien Oliver, Doremus and nothing like a Dane come away at the 200 metre mark. And Doremus is finding plenty. He's kicked away two and a half in front of nothing like a Dane. Quick ransom and vintage crock. But it's Doremus nicely clear in the Melbourne Cup. He's got the cup one. He's holding nothing like a Dane. And Doremus wins the cup. Wins at three and a half. Nothing like a Dane. A head away third. Is vintage crop from quick ransom a gap in the race coachwood pump of the air with your fist as you hit the line and let's came up alongside you you were over the moon caked in mud but uh, that feeling that euphoric sort of feeling must be amazing yeah it is it's um it's hard to explain to anyone that's never achieved it but it's it's certainly one achievement that you wish every jockey could experience because it is it's one of those feelings you just become overcome with emotion and it's um yeah, it's, it's really special. You've been in Melbourne for uh, probably close to six years. Uh, I'd imagine when that happens, you know, thoughts of family, family back home, watching. Um, I know you're so close to, to your family in the West and uh, that, that, that must all sort of be running through your head. All, all different things must be coming into your head then. Yeah, yeah, they do. And um, I suppose, you know, the fact that my father only passed away when I was three years age, three years of age. That you know, it would have been a wonderful, um, proud moment for him to, to share that with him. But it wasn't, you know, obviously able to do that. But um, you know, it was was wonderful for the path that my brother set me on. And you know, he was a huge inspiration for me too early in my career and someone I followed into the sport. So yeah, it was um, yeah, it was really good. Was it Cup Day or was it Oaks Day that you um, you took a tumble coming out of the barrier? Yeah, it was my first ride um, Oaks Day after. Cup day, uh, the horse took one step and drove me straight into the ground and broke my collarbone. So I spent probably the next next month out of the saddle. I think. Gee, it's amazing, isn't it? Up there and down there very quickly. Yeah, sure can be. Yeah. You came back the next year in 1996. You're on the horse again, Doremus. Handicapper had got him, but he still ran well. He ran sixth. Yeah, he did. It wasn't one of my better rides. I was following the, what everyone was saying was the second coming. Um, that horse. Uh, Oscar Schindler. Oscar Schindler, yeah, and I got stuck behind him for most of the race. He went nowhere from about the half mile and uh, kind of proceeded to take me out of the race. Um, and he was a bit unlucky that year. He certainly should have gone much closer. Well, the Gay Waterhouse declared him the new Farlap, didn't she? I'm not sure, but yeah, I, you know, they were t- 
the European horses were certainly um, the flavour at that time. Yeah. Saintly won the race and he was never going to get beaten really from about the 600 metre mark and uh, he charged away. Yeah, he was a great horse. Suddenly, um, Saintly had a great run, um, but I'm not sure if I would have beat him, but um, certainly I would have got a lot closer to him. Marble Halls in 97 um, was well in the market at 7-1. to one. He, he'd, uh, he'd sort of really earned his, his place as one of the top chances. Yeah, he was an up-and-coming horse and um, had some great battles with Yippie-I-O early that year in the Queensland Derby. Um, and we thought he was our next up-and-coming sort of stayer, but it turned out he, he didn't really get the two miles. He was probably more a mile-to-mile-and-a-quarter horse, and, um, yeah, he just he, he didn't really run the trip. 98, the outsider, Sheer Danzig, finished midfield at 20-1. to 1. But in a 99, of course, you're coming off the win in the Caulfield Cup of Sky Heights. And uh, he went out in the market at seven to two equal favourite in '99. And if I remember rightly, down the straight, you were bouncing off the fence most of the way. Yeah, I just got smashed that year. Um, I remember I had a horse outside me. It was just put him into the running rail the whole way, and I think it even rubbed his name off the saddlecloth. Um, it was just uh, it was a nightmare of a race. He drew in, and and um, he just never got a chance to show his best. And the horse virtually, um, yeah, he, he virtually turned it up. Um, just from just getting punished from, from horses on his outside the whole way around. Yeah, stayed in, so it probably didn't really help him. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I remember just, I had to end up trying to get him to the outside so he would let go again. He made some ground, but um, the race was all over. Uh, 2000, fourth on Carpstad Way, 9-2 favourite. That was a year of brew, the lightweight. Yeah, Carpstad Way was, was a really good horse. He struggled to win a big race. He was probably a bit un- unlucky in a, in a Caulfield Cup that year. And, um, yeah, he, he ran a really good fourth. Um, yeah, he just probably wasn't quite quite good enough to win it, but he ran a super race. Let's talk about 2002 and, and what an amazing win this was, media puzzle. Qualified to get into the Melbourne Cup by winning the Geelong Cup. A long-range plan by one of the, the greats of training in the world in, in Dermot Weld. When did you actually know that the horse was coming and when, when did Dermot actually ask you to ride a media puzzle? Well, it's an interesting story, this one. He actually had Vinnie Rowe coming out that year as well, and I was keen to get on him, and one of the part owners was keen for me to ride him. I'd ridden for him in the UK a little bit, um, a, a man called Michael Watt, and um, but he didn't have a big enough share of the horse. Um, uh, there was another guy. Uh, he was a d- film director, actually. He, he um, filmed, um, I think it was that Daniel Day-Lewis movie, My Left Foot or something like that, and he was... Um, he was the major owner, and obviously Pat Smullen was his Dermot stable rider, and so um, Pat was going to ride that horse. And but Dermot said to me, "I've got this other horse out here, Media Puzzle, who's he's not qualified. Um, he's got to run and win in the Geelong Cup, but you can ride him there if you want and see what you think." So I said, "Okay." I, I galloped him at Flemington in the lead up to the race, and he galloped enormous. And I thought, "Geez, he's going to take some beating in the Geelong Cup, this horse." And he, um, sure enough, he won that and won it convincingly won by about four, four or five lengths or something in a in a track record time and got a penalty to get into the Melbourne Cup so I thought we're in the in the cup with a live chance now and um, yeah it was probably only a week after that that unfortunately my brother had a serious accident um, in a trial in Perth and um, yeah I had to fly to Perth uh, that day and um, you know he was on life support and Unfortunately, he didn't make it, and um, then I was faced with a decision whether I had to ride, whether I could ride in that Melbourne Cup, and that was only about a week before the Melbourne Cup, and I had a few days in Perth, and um, it was really difficult decision to make. But um, with consultation with my mum, we sat down and discussed it, and we thought, you know, what would my brother want? And he would, we knew, we knew that he would have been thinking if I had a chance to win the Cup that I should be riding it. So. You know, that's what I decided to do. You made that decision to ride, but um, mentally, you know, I think we, we reflect back now and, and, and we look at how you did that. Um, how did you steel yourself to uh, to get on with the job and, and shut all that um, that sadness and that, that tragedy out of your mind? Yeah, look, it was obviously a really difficult time and, you know, at times difficult to focus on riding, but, um, you know, I felt, probably felt most comfortable when I was on the horse. Um, it was just probably all the outside noise and on the periphery uh, around us when I in between races and and 
you know, even the days in between the races that you found yourself a little bit distracted. But, um, you know, I think I had eight rides on Derby Day and, you know, one of the favourites in the Derby, and I don't think I might have had one place or something on that day, so I was questioning whether I'd made the right decision. I thought I rode okay. It was a couple of unlucky runners, but that kind of can happen. And then, so I just had kept reassuring myself that I'd made the right decision and that things would turn around, you know, if I, if I just kept kept riding well. And on Saturday, a little bit similar, oh, sorry, on Derby, on Cup Day again, a little bit similar again. I had my first few rides uh, didn't go so well and, you know, I got to the Cup. I'm still questioning whether I'd made the right call. And... Um, yeah, I, I have to say that I've never ridden in a cup that's gone so smoothly as, as that one. Um, horse got into a beautiful position, settled really well. I had a trouble-free run, and, you know, when I when I pulled out to go, I just thought it's going to take a good one to beat him, and um, he uh, he won really well. Media puzzle is wider out on the track, and they're followed out wider by Beekeeper, and Distinctly Secret coming around the turn in the Melbourne Cup. Hatheran has gone. Pugin struggling. It's Vinnie Rowan. Media puzzle at the 400 metre mark. Two and a half in front of Beekeeper. Then further back, Pentastic from Distinctly Secret. But Media puzzle at the 300 metre mark is kicked clear from Vinnie Rowe. Down the middle is Beekeeper. Pentastic, Mr. Prudent. And then came Distinctly Secret. Damien Oliver with an angel riding on his shoulder for his brother Jason. Media puzzle is safely home. He's got the cup one from Mr. Prudent. Media puzzle takes the Melbourne Cup by two and a half. Mr. Prudent, third home is Beekeeper. Chief Stewart at the time was uh, Des Gleeson and he, he, I've spoken to Des many times about this and he said that you came and spoke with him um, away from the race course. Uh, what, 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 did you, what did you say to him? <clears throat> I really can't remember, Brian. It's, um, that, that week was a bit of a blur for me. There was so much going on, to be honest. Um, but one thing I can remember, it was certainly one of the proudest moments of my life because um, obviously my brother, who was a huge... Um, influence on my career and you know I was so glad that I made the decision and had had the courage to to be able to pull it off um, because it, it's it's just a, I think it's a it's a huge recognition to him and um, legacy to him um, that you know will always be remembered. I remember the uh, the sights and calling the race uh, back in 2002 and um as you pulled up and Johnny Lett spoke to you and the crowd were going nuts. I'd never seen a reaction like it and the horse was well on the market. I think he's into about, oh, what was he, 11 to 2. So everyone was onto him the way he'd come through the Geelong Cup and I think he was the first horse to complete the Geelong Cup, Melbourne Cup double in 130 years, uh, which was a record in itself. But the image that I'll take with me is um, when Pat Smullen came up alongside you on Vinnie Rowe and put his arm around you and you put your arm around him, just standing by the winning post, and jockeys coming up, either tapping you on the head. I think I recall Frankie Dottori tapping you on the skull cap. Every jock coming past. Um, was it a blur to you when you think about that time? Um, yeah, thinking back about it now, I think um, a lot of the jockeys could understand probably the pressure I was under. So it was, uh, you know, it was it was really nice to to know that they all had my back, you know. Yeah, the camaraderie, I've, I've never seen anything like that, never. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, it was pretty special, yeah. yeah. It's still it's difficult for me to talk about it because it brings back, you know, those those memories for me. And coming back, uh, people pulling the, the petals off the rose bushes and throwing them at you and uh, you, you were king. Uh, but uh, many people have said it's probably one of the great one of the greatest moments in sport and and to be a part of it uh in a tragic way but in a euphoric way it's it's something that'll never leave you yeah that's for sure it's uh, as i said it was a, it's a huge memory for my brother who was a huge influence on my career um sad but um yeah. but really good yeah. des gleason said he shed a tear even at the scales and you then flew home and um the next day was the service for your brother and you placed the Melbourne Cup, your, your trophy, on, on his casket and you spoke there. And um, what, uh, what an amazing, you know, what an amazing time he, he had in racing, but to be able to maybe salute him in the way that you did and, and we recall you looking up to the heavens going to the line. What did you actually say? Do you remember what you said? Um, 
yeah, I just said my boy. It's it's a way we used to greet one another, and um, yeah, it was just that it was a it was a tribute to show it was for him. Yeah, and wearing his breeches too. Yeah, it's pretty special. Damien, this one meant a lot to you, didn't it? The Melbourne Cup. Yeah, it did, Johnny. Um, it's going to be hard to keep this together. I know it is, mate. But the, the Australia and the world with you. Yeah, mate. Melbourne Cups don't mean a thing to me anymore. I'd give it back right now to have my brother back. Yeah, mate, we can understand that. But this was for him, wasn't it? Oh, it was. It really was. And, you know, you're a very close family. And uh, and today was something very, very special for you. It wasn't just the Melbourne Cup. It was no, everything it's... about yourself and your family. Well, yeah, it's, the family's been through a hard time. Um, all the family and friends have been so good. I mean, it's so tragic to lose someone in the family so young. And... Um, it just goes to show you should never take anything for granted and, you know, always appreciate your loved ones. Yeah, Damien, you know, over there, where we're about a furlong away or 200 metres from over 100,000 people are just going to go crazy for you because they all rode, I think they all rode the horse with you today. Yeah, the crowd's been great. I've been having a shocker. But um, they stuck with me and uh, this all credit with this horse, mate. He was, he was just far too good today. I got there too early. But he was just so good. On RSN 927, we're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup, Australia's greatest race. 2003, Mr. Pruden, 25 to 1, midfield, <laughs> back with the cap catches. Yeah, it was back down to earth. Um, yeah, uh, he, um, I think he ran second in the Puzzle the year before, but he was getting on a little bit in years after that. Um, so. Yeah, he, he was probably a little bit past his best then. 2005, no ride. You break the sequence here. Yeah, I was injured that year. I broke my back um, earlier that year. Uh, was that at Moody Valley at the night meeting? It was, yeah. So I broke it, um, I think it was Good Friday. Um, Good Friday Eve. And so I, I fractured the T3 and 4 in my back and, and had a spinal fusion. Um, from So I have my spine fused now from T1 to T6, so pretty much six vertebrae fused through my um, shoulder blades there and uh, that kept me out of the saddle for 15 months. Um, I had these titanium rods and four screws put in my back so I couldn't ride with them um, in for for 12 months and then they took them out and then three months later um, I was able to get back into the saddle. Was there any time that you thought that uh, maybe you wouldn't get back? Sure, yeah, I thought I might be paralysed there for a little while, you know, it was pretty close. Um, so yeah, I didn't even know if I'd get back to riding at all. I was, um, you know, was unfortunate, but quite fortunate at the same time. I remember that fall. It was in the straight. I reckon about 200 metres from home. Yeah, not, not even that. Probably it might have been about 100. Yeah, 100 metres. Yeah. yeah. Amazing how you can get out of those things. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You got to be lucky sometimes. <laughs> no question of that. 2006. Yeah, this was the. Uh, the Japanese invasion, Delta Blues and Pop Rock, uh, heads up, heads down, uh, down to the line, uh, similar ownership. How close was that? Yeah, really close. Um, this was, um, you know, really, a really proud moment for me, even though I only ran second. But um, I'd just come back to riding in July, I reckon, um, June or July that year from my broken back. And I'd only been back riding for about a month and I had another bad fall at uh, Werribee where a horse had a heart attack mid-race. And, and in the middle of the field, at, at the middle of the race, and the horse went through the running rail, took out about 50 metres of, um, of rail and I went through it with it. And um, I thought, oh, here we go again. Um, but um, got out of that one all right. Um, just had a... Uh, I'd have a broken hand, so I had a plate put in my hand, and I had a, a gash in my face, which had about six stitches. So um, kept me out of the saddle for about a month, but sort of put me back a little bit into my spring carnival sort of um, preparation because I think I, you know, I think that happened in July, and I was sort of out riding till sort of August. So I missed four or five weeks with that broken hand, and had a plate put in my hand, and even when I was riding, it was. It was difficult to ride for the first few weeks with it in. But <clears throat> going back further than that, I'd, I'd spent a couple of stints in Japan uh, in two or three years before that and, and laying some foundations for hopefully some horses to come over here and ride. And, um, and I knew how good the Japanese horses were. 
um, and the horses that were bringing out, you know, I, was, I secured the ride pretty early and knew I had a great chance. So this Pop Rock was a nice up-and-coming horse, and he was coming out with a horse called Delta Blues, who was kind of a stable mate who'd performed well, was getting on in his years, and um, I'd been riding track work on Pop Rock, and I just fell in love with the horse. He was he was a really nice horse and a great, you know, a, a good stayer. And I rode him in the Caulfield Cup, and he just didn't get around Caulfield well enough. He struggled getting around the tighter turns and the undulating track, but I just thought when he got to Flemington that, geez, he'd be hard to beat in the Melbourne Cup. I'd actually, I'd, winning three of them, I'd probably he was as confident I'd been on any of them. Um, anyway, so before the race... Um, they asked me to speak to the Japanese jockey Iwata. He got lost in a previous race and didn't know where he was going. So I said to him, there's not much speed in this Melbourne Cup. I said, you go forward and I'll follow you and we should get a good run up on the pace and, um, you know, we'll be in the first half of the field and we should be both good chances. Anyway, so we jumped out. My horse missed the kick and he jumped well and he's up near the lead and I'm out the back. And anyway, I thought, oh, that doesn't matter. I didn't panic and coming around... You know, around the home turn, even before the home turn, about the seven or eight hundred metre mark, I moved into the race nicely, and and by the time I'd straightened, um, you know, only had a handful of horses in front of me, and I thought oh, I was just just picking them off. It was a matter of time, and Delta Blues was the last one to pick off, and um, the closer I got to him, the further that winning pace got away, and I just couldn't pick him up, and it, we went, we had a driving finish, but he managed to hold me off, and um, even though he didn't win, I as I said, I felt like but still, I'd got back to where I was, and um, you know, it was a pretty proud moment. The fact that I'd spent some time in Japan and um, got to know their horses, and and ran a Quinella in the first um, Melbourne Cup to be run one two by Japanese horses, and um, Awad had gone past the post. The, the Japanese jockey he wasn't sure if he'd won. I, I patted him on the back, said, "Yes, you won." And I think that year I became the most interviewed Melbourne Cup runner-up jockey in history <laughs> because Awada didn't speak any English and I thought, oh, he's, his interview with Letsy is going to be um, quite comical because Letsy's Japanese wasn't very good. Mandela Williams has got right up on the fence and he joins them and heads them. Maybe better comes down the outside. Here's Pop Rock. Delta Blues in front again from Mandela. 300 left to go. Maybe better coming on. Zipping, battling strongly. Pop Rock joining in. Delta Blues in front at the 200. Pop Rock, he's danger on the outside. Delta Blues by a length. Pop Rock coming at him. Japan 1-2. Oliver wields a whip. Pop Rock trying to get to Delta Blues. Delta Blues and Pop Rock, they come to the line. Oh, very close. Delta Blues may be a nose to Pop Rock. Very little between them. Let's see, tells a beautiful story. The... Uh producer said do you know anything in Japanese and Letsy said no and one bloke said I know Konnichiwa and uh, Sayonara that's about all the, the boys from the, the TV van could tell Letsy so uh, they said go and go and interview uh, Ollie he ran second and uh, Letsy told us recently on this program he said I went up and alongside and said winner he said yes winner and bolted <laughs> uh, it was a great finish um, and as, again, you're coming back from injury and just uh, going back to that fall at Werribee. They were the aluminium rails, and again, I was calling that particular day, and I remember the rail just flicking back like a giant razor blade, and, God, that could have been catastrophic. Mm, yeah, it actually it probably looked like one of the, the more serious falls. It just goes to show you've got to be lucky sometimes. That looked like it could have been catastrophic, as you said, but I got out of, got out of, got out of it relatively unscathed. Um, so you just got to be lucky sometimes. There's no doubt about that. 2007 Purple Moon, uh, $5.50 chance in the in the market. Came here as a three-year-old, uh, trained by Luca Kamani. Yeah, that's right. Um, he'd, I think he won the e-ball in the UK and was really well weighted, about 53 and a half kilos, and um, looked a terrific chance and um, thought he had it shot to bits but ran into an outstanding stayer by the name of Efficient that managed to mow us down. Um, so, yeah, just couldn't quite, couldn't quite get there. Yeah, one for Lloyd there. Efficient had won the derby and hadn't won in 12 months. And uh, there was an incredible story around around Efficient too because um, the ride went to Michael Wright sort of only days before the race. Yeah, I'm not sure the circumstances of that. But um, I do know that Lloyd held Efficient in really high regard as one of his best days that he's had. So, um, yeah, stiff to run into a really good one, I think. There's no question of that. 2008, seventh on Mad Rush. Another important, again, in the market, about $5.50. 
Yeah, he was a good chance. I'd actually ridden Bower, who ran second in that year's Melbourne Cup, um, to win the Geelong Cup, um, but he had a little bit lighter weight for us, um, so I stuck with Managar, who I rode in the Caulfield Cup. was a bit unlucky in the Caulfield Cup. Had every chance in the Melbourne Cup, but just probably didn't quite run a strong two miles out. Now, 2009, Warringah ran second last at $31. 2010, that was the year of America. Uh, you weren't far off at, uh, on Managar. It ran seventh that year. Yeah, Managar, I think um, he was a really nice horse. He probably didn't really hit his straps till he moved to Peter Moody here in Australia. He was trained by Luke Kamani when I rode him. And a couple of my better Melbourne Cup rides that I've actually ridden, but um, that was probably as close as he could finish in those years. Following year 2011, again back on Managar for Moody, and you weighed in, you ran fifth, the horse got out to $41, do you, do you remember that one? Yeah, once again he had every chance, but um, just wasn't quite good enough that year. Jumping on Americane in 2012, in the bidding at 750, he won the cup in 2010, he ran midfield? Yeah, he did, um, I just, I think I got back on the inside on him, and he didn't really appreciate being too tight in amongst runners not sure he, he could have won but I think he appreciated a bit more room but he, he ran well um, with um, you know but he, he wasn't going to win 2013 things got a lot uh, different here because uh, you were able to win the cup on Fioretti yeah that was amazing um, uh, Fiorente was a, a really special horse he um, was my first ride on him in a race actually I'd done a lot of work on the horse um, in Melbourne um, and had a you know, had a great partnership with Gay that spring. Um, and, you know, it was really special to win Cher and Gay Waterhouse's first Melbourne Cup. He was, uh, he was an extremely good horse. And um, he'd ran second in the Cox Plate in the lead-up. And um, actually second in the Melbourne Cup the previous year. And Gay had specifically set him for this Melbourne Cup. So it was really special when a plan came together like that. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a terrific win. When did you actually get the ride? Because he won the Fian, as you say, your first ride actually on him was on Melbourne Cup Day. Um, and I remember going to track work in the three or four weeks leading up and saw you, and you were a man on a mission. I could tell how you know, you're so focused. This was the horse that was going to give you another Melbourne Cup, and it just all went to plan, didn't it? It did, yeah. Uh, Nashville Willa had rode him in the Fian, um, and there was a, I could, there was a little bit... Uh, of disharmony between Gay and Nash at the time and some, there was a lot of the owners were in Melbourne and, and Gay was sort of based in Sydney and I just, I got a feeling that she wanted someone in Melbourne to, to really play a role in in um, the preparation of the horse and um, I was fortunate enough to, to get the ride and I was meant to ride him in the Cox Plate but I got suspended and missed that ride but as you said I was doing the bulk of the track work on the horse um, in the lead up to the Cup and um, you know, he was such a dream horse to ride. He had, had a magnificent temperament and um, he had a perfect preparation. And, um, yeah, it was great to team up with Gay and, and share in that, you know, magnificent win. What sort of instructions does someone like Gay give you uh, going out for a Melbourne Cup? Well, you know, you've been there before <laughs> many, many times. Uh, so what was sort of, you know, from the mounting yard to going out there? Yeah, not too many instructions um, from Gay for the Cup. Um, you know, normally she likes her horses to race right up on the speed, but I think that was part of um, uh, part of the reason she wanted me a part of this team. Um, with my experience in the Melbourne Cup, we were able to sh- share in that, and um, you know, I had great confidence in the horse and his ability um, to quicken. He was probably he wasn't really a um, it wasn't a, a true two miler. He was probably his best two thousand to two thousand four hundred metres, but. His class just got him through, and um, my main objective was just, just to keep him relaxed and um, and capitalise on that acceleration that he had. Yeah, that, that turn of foot, I recall that, and I, we saw it in the Fian, but, gee, we saw it in the Melbourne Cup within a couple of bounds when you loomed up with the pack, and, you know, there were eight or nine chances, but he just then puts a two to three lengths on them. Yeah, yeah, he was a quality horse, and, as I said, not a, not a true two-miler, but... Um, his, his quality and his acceleration and you know and he was well weighted he just had the perfect preparation everything went perfect that day you show uh, you talk about his acceleration he, he came back in the 2000 meter Australian Cup in the autumn and he was brilliant there wasn't he he was yeah he ran in that race second up he he'd um, remember gay and I discussing what what sort of distance did we start him in and I just thought off the Melbourne Cup prep we could run him in the I think it was the St George over 1800 and then straight into the to the Australian Cup and 
you know, he was um, he won that well. Faulkner, the widest runner, right around the outside. With him also is Seamoon as they come into the straight, and Fiorini's getting out now. Fiorini is going out after Simonon and Red Cadeau. Here comes Oliver on Fiorini. As they go to the 300-metre mark, he moves up to Red Cadeau and Mount Athos. Then further back, Faulkner from the back of the field. Fiorini's taken the lead from Red Cadeau. As they go to the 200-metre mark, it's Fiorini a length in front of Red Cadeau. Then Simonon, Mount Athos, and with a late run, then Dandino. Fiorini in front with 100 to go. Ollie riding hard. Gay lives the dream. Fiorini wins the cup. Back to 2014, the next year, midfield, 14th on uh, mutual regard at $9. I don't recall much about that horse. Was he an import? I think he might yeah, have been. he was actually trained by a good friend of mine in Johnny Murtagh, yeah. uh, former champion Irish jockey. It was great to ride one in a cup for him, but he, he pulled really hard, that horse. He was a strange horse. I, I worked him one morning at Geelong in the lead-up, and we couldn't get him going. He was so lazy. Um, but just he had blinkers on him that day, and he just the, the day really got to him. There's, you know, 100,000 people there, and it just switched him on too much, and he over-raced, and he... You know, if he'd had settled, he certainly would have run much better. In the next year, 2015, eighth on uh, the offer for Gay at $31? Yeah, the offer was a good horse. He, he'd Sydney Cup winner, and I won a Ballarat Cup on him. Probably just better on a soft track. He ran up to his best on that year. It was uh, um, the uh, famous Prince of Penzance uh, Melbourne Cup, I think, where, you know, the inside was really... Um, it was a heavy bias to the inside, and he, he ran a super race, but probably better on, on softer ground. A few got flattened in the straight there, didn't they? I think uh, Frankie Dettori got outed uh, in, the, in the home straight. Were you one of the sufferers that, that year? No, I was one of the ones that missed it. <laughs> <laughs> because you were going back. Yeah, I was uh, coming around him, and I was probably fortunate to run eighth. There was probably a few more that could have finished in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> Following year for Lee Freeman, Exospheric, an import at $21. He ran eighth in 2016. I remember he's run the Caulfield Cup. It was good. Yeah, he did. He ran, I think, third in the Caulfield Cup. Ran well, but probably just struggled a little bit at the two miles. Yeah. Okay, 2017, no ride for D. Oliver in the Melbourne Cup. What happened there? can't remember what happened then. I must have been out of favour with some people and just couldn't get a ride. <laughs> so where did you watch it? Were you, you would have been riding that day. Yeah, actually, um, I watched it uh, in an area. I think I've... I started this uh, craze. We get in the Stewards Tower, the jockeys underneath uh, the level under the Stewards Tower. It's a great, great spot to watch it. I think I started that one back in was it? What was the last one I missed? Was it two thousand and five? Yeah, back in two thousand and five. Yeah. yeah. Now they all clamber up there, don't yeah, they? It's a, spot it's a great sight. It is. Yeah. Because yeah. you can watch the race and you watch the crowd. It's just an atmosphere. Great atmosphere. You see Sturman Bastler out there with his camera. Yeah. <laughs> And last year, 2018, Red Cardinals, second last at $31 for uh, Chrissy Lees. Uh, actually, that was Darren Weir's, that one. Darren Weir had him yeah, then, did he? Yeah, yeah for Australian Bloodstock. That's right, yeah, he just raced a bit keen. Um, that one didn't sell too well, and I think he chose down. On RSN 927, we're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup, Australia's greatest race. 28 rides, three wins, three seconds. Um, What's in the melting pot for this year? Uh, I ride a horse called Mustagia in the Caulfield Cup. We'll see how he goes. Um, he's a possibility. Um, also got uh, Steel Prince, so I'll ride in the Herbert Power uh, coming up as well. Um, so, yeah, there's um, a little bit to unfold yet, but hopefully there's one more in me. I'm sure there is. Steel Prince, uh, he qualified in winning the Roy Higgins, didn't he? Uh, so there were the Bart Cummings. Uh, the... Andrew Ramston. Andrew Ramston, yeah, and he beat Surprise Baby. Uh, what weight's he got? Uh, he's around 52 and a half, I think, at the moment. Too light for you? Yeah, he needs a, a penalty, but if he wins Herbert Power, that's a possibility. Tell us about Mustajir. Uh, Mustajir, he won the Ebor, which I think is a good form reference for the Melbourne Cup. It's a big handicap field, which is, um, holds some similarities to our um, Melbourne Cup here in, in the fact that a lot of the European races are run sometimes small fields with not much congestion. So I think that race is a, is a comparable set-up type of race to a Melbourne Cup. You've ridden Group 1 winners overseas, you've ridden in Japan, you've ridden in the UK. Where does the Melbourne Cup sit? Does it still sit where, where we, we've always had it, like at the top? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, th- I, think, I still think we've got to be proactive in, in the marketing and, the, and I think Australians have to stay relative with it because... In recent years, we've seen the dominance of the European horses, and you know even a lot of Australian horses are going to buy 
uh, European type horses for it now but hopefully with a lot of those Europeans coming out with the likes of Americaine and Fiorente standing at stud here now and um, that we can still have the dream of breeding and training and owning an Australian local horse um, but you know with the likes of the, um, the Everest coming up in Sydney and and the fact that our race, our breeding is geared towards sprinting, that we must uh, remember that um, the history and the relevance of the Melbourne Cup stays at the forefront and um, that we do stay proactive and it, it is still our greatest race in Australia. What would happen if you were offered uh, a plum ride in the Everest? Um, you'd certainly have to consider it. Um, but the fact that it is in Sydney, and I'm based in Melbourne, um, my loyalty still lay towards Melbourne, particularly in the spring, um, where you know I ride here on a, on a weekly basis, and um, most of my trainers that I ride for are, uh, and owners are here in, in Melbourne, so uh, it would take a really good one for me to go up there and uh, have to not want to ride in Melbourne. Ollie, uh, you spoke about the falls and, and uh, the things that you've survived. It's, it's an extraordinary... Um story when you, you reflect back on it. How long do you think you've got still in the saddle? Because before you answer it, um, I and I think there are a lot of other, I'm not going to say I'm a good judge, but a lot of other judges believe that you've never been riding better. You must know that. Yeah, I think I'm riding as well as probably, you know, I'm, I'm certainly physically not as as uh, my prime as I was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, but I think I'm smarter now than I was back then. Um, but, I mean, you can't have a 30-odd year career in racing without expecting to have some ups and downs and some injuries there, here and there. Um, but I'm enjoying it now. I'm not looking too far ahead. I just take it year by year. And um, as long as I'm still getting good opportunities, enjoying it and going well, I'll keep going. In the olden days, uh, not too far back, the likes of Roy Higgins and um, you know, that, that sort of... They wouldn't go. They wouldn't go to Ballarat on a Wednesday and they wouldn't go to to Bendigo on a Thursday, it'd be rare for them to do it uh, because the midweek meetings maybe at Werribee were metropolitan um, and they write, write on a Saturday. So their sort of their writing schedule is nowhere near what you guys do, you know, day and night, day and night. How do you, how do you cope with that? Yeah, the landscape's changed a lot in racing, in, you know, in, you know in my, certainly even in my career, let alone when you talk back to, you know, Roy's days. Um, you have to go to a lot of these meetings now for the trainers that you're riding for because a lot of those horses start at those tracks and then they come to town. So if you're not riding them at the start, you, it's hard to stay with them all the way. Um, and, you know, with night racing now, you know, it's um, it's seven days a week. So you've just got to manage yourself a little bit better. We don't ride probably as much track work as the guys used to do back in the day, um, but I'm certainly right, race riding as much as I ever did. I think I had six or 700 rides last year. Um, so... You've just got to manage yourself a little bit better. So you have an agent to take your rides? You do, yep, uh, I do. And um, I still try and find one or two days a week where I can have a race kind of free day because yeah. <laughs> you've got to still keep yourself a little bit fresh as well. For a family life, um, for a jockey, it, it must be tough. You've got a teenage daughter, 15, you've got three children, so uh, they've got to take up a lot of your time. And you, you don't want to miss them growing. You don't want to miss them coming through all this you know schooling stages and sport and sport's very difficult I found that as a race caller I could never go to my kids sports on a Saturday yeah you miss a lot of the, I miss a lot of the girls netball on Saturdays but you know if I'm ever suspended I try and get along to one of their games and my son's footy on Sunday I'm, I'm that's where I that's where I try and go mostly I'll try and avoid Sundays if I can I'm a assistant coach and runner um so uh, that's that's something I really enjoy um you know, sharing the time with the kids and at the training and that sort of thing as well. So, you know, you get the odd day off during the week, so um, that's some time you can share, share with them as well. You and Jason used to play footy as juniors back uh, back in WA? Yeah, we loved our footy. We were quite capable until we hit um, sort of puberty and everyone else kept growing and we didn't. We didn't. <laughs> and um, so, so who does your son play with? Uh, the Port Melbourne Colts. How's he going? Yeah, he's going all right. Yeah. <laughs> Where's he playing? Uh, he's in the midfield. And what about surfing? I know you've, you've surfed most of your life. You, you love getting to, getting on the board and getting out there on the waves. Can you still get time for that? Yeah, occasionally. Not as much as I'd like. But, um, yeah, try and sneak down when I've got a day off. If, um, 
If there's surf, I'll go and have a surf. If there's no surf, I'll, you'll find me out in the golf course. <laughs> and I know uh, your wife, Trish, I think you, you, you met her. She was a surfer, wasn't she? She was, yeah. She uh, a bit the same too. Doesn't get to surf as much these days either. Yeah, yeah with three kids. What was your greatest thrill in the sport? <clears throat> oh, it's really hard to put it down to one. Um, you know, those three Melbourne Cups are obviously really special, all really different circumstances. Um, but, you know... Um, all really proud moments in my career and the fact that I've been able to win three Melbourne Cups in three different decades um, is is really um, really proud in the fact that I've, the longevity of my career I've been able to ride at a high level for a long time. You know, when you, you look at your records, uh, you're one step away from so many incredible feats. You're 10 Metropolitan Victorian Jockey Premierships. The record's 11, Billy Duncan and Roy Higgins, so you're one off that. Scobie Breesley's got five Caulfield Cups, you've got four. There's you, uh, Kieran McAvoy, Glenn Boss, you've all sitting on three Melbourne Cups. The record is four held by Harry White and the late Bobby Lewis. Uh, you're one, one step away from equaling or bettering these records. Got a few boxes to tick yet, haven't I? <laughs> that, that's, that, that must drive you. Uh, yeah, they're not easy goals to achieve. Um, you know, being one step behind them is hard enough, but I never, th- never thought I'd win that many to be honest so you know any anyone from here I'll be thinking is a bonus that's for sure BM. Bobby Lewis rode in 33 cups you've got 28 on the board uh that's another five years mate. Mm. Yeah not sure about that (laughs) (laughs) see how we go. Thanks so much for your time it's uh it's been great to catch up with you um to win three Melbourne Cups to win one Melbourne Cup uh, puts you in the the record books and you become a part of folklore um and particularly that media puzzle, but to, to do it and um, to still be going as strong, it, it, it must give you a great sense of achievement. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, as I said, I'm proud that I've been able to ride at a high level for such a long time, and um, you know, while I can still do it, I'll continue to do it. As we say in racing, mate, safe riding. Thank you. This has been the history of the Melbourne Cup, 6 till 7 Sunday mornings, every Sunday until Cup Day, on RSN where the Spring Racing Carnival happens, and later on podcast.